Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I'm joined by Deirdre Clementi, a professor at UNLV and a fashion historian. We talk about how the pandemic has changed what we wear and where we wear it. After that, Joey and I talk about the big lie, a sticking point for many Republican voters who believe the 2020 election was rigged. We talk about voter fraud, election reform, and how different candidates are using these talking points on the campaign trail. At the end of the show, we interviewed a few people at the Nevada Day Parade talking about why they were there and what made the state's 157th birthday so special. Deirdre Clementi is a cultural historian and the director of public history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She specializes in clothing and fashion. She joined me on the show this week to talk about fashion during the pandemic, how it's changed, and what it may look like moving forward. Just to start off, we want to know how COVID has really impacted and affected fashion trends. Well, I mean, what we wear in many ways has always, I, as a historian, I always struggle to use that word, but what we wear has always been tied to a representation of our socioeconomic identities, mm-hmm. right? So what we're doing right now, what sort of the current buzz in American fashion is, of course, a direct outgrowth of the cultural, social and cultural change that has gone down in the past two years of this pandemic. And I think that it's fundamentally changed a lot of people's approach to the role of top-down social rules in people's everyday lives. Fashion is such a statement, right? Like, I think it's such a part of people's identity a lot of the time. Has that, have you talked to people now? Because we haven't been going outside as much, right? We haven't been seeing other people as much. Are people less tied to like what they're wearing because they're not seeing everybody as, as often? I think one of the most important things for us to acknowledge as we move forward culturally with the American wardrobe is to sort of understand what's happening right now with this personalization of dress as a as an outgrowth of really the past 10 years, as often happens in history. This happened in World War II. It happened after World War I. Things that we consider sort of these shifts in dress and shifts in fashion change aren't just out of nowhere. They've actually been sort of hanging in the wings, but social upheaval gives them the chance to sort of step center stage. So I think that this sort of rise of casual dress at the level that it is in American culture at the moment is really the, the natural sort of warp speed version of where we were going. So these, these changes towards casualization and this idea of, no, I'm not going to wear a button down collar shirt and khakis to work anymore. Like those kind of rules just have less, less weight amid cultural and really workplace changes where a lot of workplaces don't want to police that. I bet you your employer doesn't want to come and say, I'm sorry, only green beanies today, no yellow beanies are worn. The modern worker just doesn't live by those, oh, where's the dress code handbook anymore? I mean, it's laughable. Damn, it killed off a lot of those sort of vestiges of corporate control over its employees' public appearances in, in the right contexts. So you said like, this has been a trend moving towards a casual fashion for a while since even pre-pandemic, but the pandemic kind of accelerated it. And that's where we're at now. Are you seeing accelerated fashion trends happening more? Well, that's of course been a, the rise of American consumerism. I mean, that idea of 
things next, next, next has been a post-war consuming trend. I mean, so it's only going faster. Social media makes it faster. It'll be interesting to see if there's pushback on some of this in that a lot of other consuming experts would say that a lot of people are starting to consume less actually because they're having clothes that can fit multiple purposes. So you don't need a wardrobe for work, a wardrobe for your date, dying a wardrobe. There's just a lot, the versatility of American dress is actually sort of killing off a lot of sectors of you know, formerly strong sectors of the garment industry. When we're talking about like those sectors of the garment industry, I think one thing that I think of is fast fashion, right? H&M. And, and with online shopping, it became such a huge deal during the pandemic, right? People didn't want to go to stores. Is fast fashion seeing kind of this this resurgence or is it is it are people caring about like the quality or where they're getting things as much now? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, stores like H&M and Zara are struggling right now because there's faster fashion than them now. So fast fashion in, well, I I think as long as people want to consume at the levels that they have pre-pandemic, that they'll thrive. But I definitely feel that there's a trend in younger consumers and middle, early middle-aged consumers to buy better quality stuff and buy less of it. So we were talking about leisure wear and how that's kind of like, that is like the trend right now, would you would say, right? Is leisure wear or, or, or casual wear? Well, I would say that athleisure is, I wouldn't call it a trend because when I use that word, it usually means it's something that's sort of going and coming and then will then recede. But I think that sort of the basic premises of, of, of athleisure will have fundamental aspect like impacts on the American in wardrobe. So yes, I would say that athleisure is the fundamental way of casual dress at the moment. When I, when I think of it, I think of like yoga pants and sweatshirts and sweats and, and beanies. <laughs> when I think of athleisure, it's athleisure is not sportswear. It is sportswear and casual wear with elements of more formal dress. For example, it's not just yoga pants. It would be more like yoga pants with a fake zipper, but doesn't have a zipper. Do you see what I mean? It's like the interesting thing about that leisure is it's like trying to be both. So nicer fabric and some of the detailings of a more classic garment, like a sports coat. So maybe it would have patch pockets, like a sort of like a more casual sports coat. So it, 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 it takes stylistic elements of more formal garments like a sports coat, which was actually very informal in the 1930s. So it just depends on where your scale is, right? Really takes those some of those elements of previous versions of sportswear and puts them into stretchy fabrics that are super washable, into, you know, cool color combinations. So that's really what I think athleisure is. Denim. What is the future of denim? I feel like that's been such a staple of the American closet for so long. Well, this is a really big question that you've stumbled onto. And a lot of analysts are looking at what's going to happen. The jean market hasn't been awesome. Just like it just, it hasn't been a thriving market in the United States. It's still a flat, thriving global market. But I think what you'll see is a mixed denim fabrics are really going to sort of play right into that more super casual, yet you can have a little bit of an edge of formality in it with a darker jean with a lot of, you know, like a spandex or sort of a different kind of synthetics woven into the denim. If denim wants to thrive and live on, it has to have a way to become modern. And of course, people will be wearing the denim that they've owned in their wardrobes for a long time too. So I don't think denim's going anywhere, but I think we're going to see some new modern adaptations of it in a generation like my children who just simply refuse to wear pants that have zippers in them. That's like a whole thing. 
Another thing that I'm, I'm thinking of too, uh, that we haven't touched on yet is footwear. Are people ditching like their heels for, for sports shoes or, or fancy sneakers? I think some of the more formal elements of our wardrobe, like heels are actually going to remain in the wardrobe as expressions of personal individuality. But I do think that the functional footwear, again, which has been like slowly defining the market for a long time, is now going to be the fundamental way that we wear shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that people will keep all of their more formal footwear as occasion-specific things. One thing I've, you know, you always hear is what's old is new again, fashion trends coming back. It seems like the 90s are kind of popular right now. We were talking about how denim needs to evolve a bit, but denim jackets seem very popular. Is that the trend you're seeing? The 90s fashion is kind of popular again. If the middle schoolers are any indication, and they usually are, then yes. Also masks, right? Huge shift in uh wearable things. It's a new thing that we did not wear in America before. Our masks, for me, I don't know. It seems like they're going to stick around for a while. I don't think like as much as people get angry about having to wear them, I think that they are an, a fashion statement. I, th- I went to a wedding recently and a girl had like an all pink dress and she had a matching pink mask. It looked great. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. I'm a big political t-shirt wearer. So I guess that the masks are like my new version of that. It's again, an, an expression of individuality and it's just, a, you can't smile at people anymore. So let your mask say something. Whatever you are, people have very strong opinions about their political party. Are statements on their clothing becoming more of a common thing? Well, I, I definitely think that the rise of the novelty T-shirt in the past 20 years, whether it's rosé all day or namaste bitches or whatever T-shirt it is, all of which, of course, I love, you know, or your home state those are, again, an expression of individuality and letting people know that's what clothing's all about, right? Is it's the most visual reaction. It's the quickest way to tell someone who you are. Mm-hmm. So if you feel that your issue is important enough to have the first thing everybody who sees you throughout the day see, then get a t-shirt that says what, what you want to say. Is there anything that's Nevada-centric that you've noticed that like is a trend here that maybe isn't anywhere else? I always love to like look for those little nuggets. I, I think that one of the things I admire most, I mean, I've been living here for over 10 years. I've been working at UNLV for 10 years. I One of the most important things about Nevada fashion I've noticed is the creative interpretation of sort of cowboy wear into everyday life, which I have a lot of respect for, like fundamental respect and have started to take up on my own. And I just, different uses of denim. I saw a guy with a denim vest on the other day in Smith's and he was just like taking small parts of sort of Western wear and just a bit, like putting them, dropping them here or there in people's wardrobes and how people do that here is very cool. And I would definitely say that that's pretty unique, unique to Nevada. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Any, any other things you noticed, like how COVID changed fashion or just any trends that you're seeing or kind of what, what the future is looking like for what people are wearing before we wrap up? Well, I think one of the most important things when you, when you talk about not only sort of the impact of the pandemic on American fashion, but also looking forward with American fashion is the role of synthetic fibers in our wardrobes. And I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, this has been going down. There's been a a, a legitimate synthetic fibers really introduced in the 1950s, sort of at a mass commercial level by the early 1950s, sort of just have slowly but surely taken over such huge parts of the textile world and how we dress and why we can go to H&M is because we have all these synthetic fibers. If that was all cotton, H&M wouldn't be that full, 
right? So I think one of the key things sort of looking forward into American fashion is what role will synthetic fibers play in the next form of the American wardrobe? And it's looking like they're just going to be the dominant force. So that'll be interesting to watch. And I'm grateful because I love a good snap on my yoga pants. That was Deirdre Clementi with UNLV. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, GQ, the Atlantic, Business Insider, and Harper's Bazaar. here and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Jacob Solis. Jacob, how's it going? It's going well, Joey. Good, good. Welcome back to the interviewee part of the podcast instead of you being on the hosting side. That's right. I switched chairs just for this. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> so anyway, you have written a, a a big story recently all about what, what we're calling the big lie. It's It's this umbrella term that kind of covers a lot of stuff. So let's just start with that. What is the big lie? Right. And, and so uh, I won't belabor this point because I'm sure a lot of us are already pretty familiar with this, but it's just an umbrella term, like you said, for this raft of conspiracy theories that essentially Donald Trump was the rightfully elected president in 2020 who was denied that presidency because of widespread voter fraud. How exactly that voter fraud manifested depends where you are and who's talking to you, but that is the gist of it. And so, Jacob, why are we talking about this right now? You know, this has been going on for a while now, but what brings it back up to the forefront? So whether or not most voters actually want to relitigate the 2020 election, it it is going to be an election issue in 2022. So nationwide, I mean, you can look at polling. There was a Yahoo News YouGov poll from August that found two thirds of Republicans believe that the election was stolen and rigged. And that uh, makes out about 29 percent of overall respondents. But in Nevada, we found that number was even higher. The Nevada Independent conducted a poll with the Melman Group. And we found that 74% of Nevada Republicans believe that Biden only won because of fraud, which makes up about 35% of respondents. So if you look at those numbers, right, there's a disconnect. Among Republicans, the big lies, it's not just a majority, it's a supermajority of Republicans believe in it. But if you look at the electorate as a whole, it really is just a fraction of all voters. And so we have a good sense of how it might affect the primary, right, because a lot of Republican candidates are talking about it in some way or another. Uh, But we have very little sense of how this might affect a general election. But I would be very surprised if it doesn't affect the general at all. Like you said, like this will affect a primary a lot. And we've got a lot of Republican primaries in the state right now because there's a lot of incumbent Democrats. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges to those seats. And to get to that point of challenging the incumbent Democrat, you have to go through a primary. And there's a ton of Republicans running for various seats, whether that's, you know, state or or federal seats from Nevada. And when we talk about that, why does it matter? Why does it matter what what these candidates think and what they're saying about this particular issue? Well, it matters because a lot of these candidates can actually affect policy on this stuff. And I think that a, a lot of people are looking at the way that Republicans act about the way that elections are run, the way that they talk about the way elections are run. It's an open question whether or not Republicans, many Republicans believe that an election 
not won by a Republican is a legitimate election, because I don't know that we can say that depending on the election right now. And we see that in Nevada, right? There are multiple candidates in multiple races who have said that they don't think that Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. And so I think that it's a it's a question, right? When you're talking about electoral politics is what does that mean? How does that play out? And then once we talk about like politics, politics, when they're in office, what do they do with that information? And I think it depends on the office. But that that's a, these are serious questions. And so when we talk about this, not every Republican running is saying that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Some of them are just saying like, hey, let's look into the voter rolls and let's let's talk about election reform. So there is a big spectrum, but election reform has been a pretty big topic for Republicans for a pretty long time. So can you talk me through that spectrum, kind of where we lie, what the different arguments are on that spectrum? Yeah, and I think that's really the word to use here is spectrum, because basically every single Republican candidate running for office right now will agree that there was some kind of fraud or at least the appearance of fraud. Now, how did that fraud manifest? Was there a lot of it? Was there a little of it? Did it impact the outcome? That's where the differences start to emerge, right? So we've actually seen very few candidates say that it was outright stolen and and that Donald Trump should be president right now. Most candidates either uh, concede that Joe Biden is the president or that they haven't seen enough evidence to support the theory that he isn't. On the flip side, you have candidates, and, and there are several prominent ones, who, who yeah, they, they believe in the sort of most hardcore conspiratorial theories that, that voting machines were rigged, that vote tallies were changed, that there was a widespread conspiracy to steal the election. And so those are the two ends we're talking about. When we talk about policy, you know, a lot of the Republicans are sticking to sort of the regular Republican line on this, which is that it's about election integrity. That's not a new talking point for the party. And for years, especially around the issue of voter ID, the idea that people should have to present a valid government ID when they go to vote rather than using something like signature verification, which is what we use now. That's not new. That's been an issue uh, for years, and uh, it's still an issue now. And we're hearing Republicans talk about it now as they have in the past. Now, only with the context, though, of 2020, which is really hard to remove from any conversation about elections. And on the flip side, I mean, you have some candidates saying that they want to conduct election audits or that they uh, want to completely overhaul the way that early voting works or they want to get rid of expanded mail-in balloting that was passed this last year. So there's a lot of questions over the actual politics here. And what's the legislature's responsibility? What's the governor's responsibility? What can the secretary of state do? But that's the sort of gist of what the candidates are saying. And so let's talk about those candidates, right? Who are the candidates? What are some of the vocal voices out there right now? Obviously, there's too many to go over in this podcast, but there are some pretty prominent ones. One of them is Adam Laxalt, who's running for U.S. Senate. And we've also got Dean Heller running for governor. There's a lot of people with their hats in the governor's race right now. But we also have some less talked about elections as well. Secretary of State comes to mind as one of them. People don't always talk about that election. But, you know, it's a pretty big deal, especially when we're talking about allegations of voter fraud because the secretary of state is in charge of elections. That's right. So I guess we could start with Laxalt. So Laxalt helped run the Trump campaign in Nevada in 2020 after he lost his own race for the governor's office in 2018. And when Trump lost Nevada, if we all remember, Nevada was one of those six states that was contested in the sort of week after Election Day as all those mail ballots came in and the vote tallies changed. And uh, Laxalt, along with several of Trump's lieutenants, guys like uh, Matt Schlapp, who runs the American Conservative Union and Rick Grinnell, He's a former intelligence director and, and Trump booster. They had 
these press conferences where they, they brought up people to say that my ballot was cast and I never cast it, or these two ballots were cast in my name, or, or my dead wife cast a ballot for me. And Laxalt actually sued the state over these supposed irregularities. Uh, that suit was later dropped. And an investigation later from the Secretary of State, Barbara Sagaski, who is a Republican, found no evidentiary support for either the claims brought by Laxalt and the Trump team or later by the state Republican Party and uh, their team of investigators. That's sort of one spectrum, the sort of like legal challenge in 2020. But yeah, you also mentioned Dean Heller who exists in a weird space with this, where he has been asked multiple times by multiple journalists and in multiple interviews, is Joe Biden president? And his response universally has been, we know who the president is. He does not name that president, just that we know who they are. So who can say what he means by that? Because he's not, he's not actually saying Joe Biden's name. And that's the kind of line that Republicans are walking here, right? When 74% of your party believe that the election was stolen, well, how do you how do you talk to those people without alienating the 70 percent of all voters who don't believe that the election was stolen? And I think that's what we've seen Heller do. Uh, similarly, Joe Lombardo has said that there was an appearance of fraud in 2020, that there was a concern. But I asked him personally in an interview whether or not he wanted to see an audit of Nevada's 2020 results, as we've seen in other states like Arizona. And he said he he didn't think so. He didn't know enough about the issue to have an opinion. So Something like an audit isn't on his radar. And then, like you said, we'll talk about Secretary of State briefly. And I think that there's going to be a lot of attention on Nevada's Secretary of State race because of one candidate in particular, and that's Jim Marchant. Jim Marchant used to be a state assemblyman. He later ran for Congress in 2020 in an election that he lost by several thousand votes. And he actually sued in 2020, claiming that his election in particular was stolen. That suit was dismissed. But very shortly after the 2020 election, he resolved to run for secretary of state because, like you said, the secretary of state is in charge of administering Nevada's elections. And in the time since, Marchant has emerged as this very high profile figure in the state who is parroting a lot of the most extreme big lie conspiracies. We've seen him attach himself to people like Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, who has been essentially the number one post-election booster of campaign election fraud theories. And Marchant has had some pretty extreme relative to the mean ideas uh, about what to do about elections. He's recommended getting rid of early voting altogether, which is part of Nevada law. And I'm not sure that the Secretary of State would be able to do that. I think Marchant is indicative of the question, right, is what happens when a real out-and-out -out election denier, right, who thinks that the election was rigged and stolen from Donald Trump is in charge of elections. And if he's elected, he would really test that question. But like I said earlier, too, I mean, there's plenty of candidates who are sticking to sort of the quote-unquote normal Republican line on this and talking about fraud in the sense of integrity, right? Believing in the sanctity of American elections by implementing sort of core Republican policies like voter ID. And we've seen people like Sam Brown, who's also running for U.S. Senate against Adam Laxalt, talk a lot about a voter ID, but not necessarily about stolen elections. And, and even the Secretary of State's race, we've got Christopher DeHere, a candidate from Washoe, who's running for Secretary of State, defend Secretary of State Barbara Sagaski and talk about the election more so in the context of that it is unfortunate that people believe it was stolen rather than oh, it was stolen. And so that's, that's you're right, that we really do see the spectrum of candidates and it really depends on, on who you ask and what you ask them. All right, Jacob, well, I appreciate you going over all of this. And also you have a tracker on the website that's following all of this, right? That's right. If there's a candidate I didn't mention or a statement that you think is in there, uh, and you can find that on the website. Cool, Jacob, well, thank you for joining me. And I'll talk to you in the outro. Oh my God, you will. 
Nevada Day is a state holiday and commemorates Nevada being admitted into the Union in 1864. It was established as a state holiday in 1933. Last week, reporter Jackie Valley and I talked to the Nevada Historical Society about the history of the day. Reporter Tabitha Mueller, photographer David Calvert, and video producer Tim Leonard were all down there talking to Nevadans about why they were there and what made the day so special. Greg Draper and we love Nevada Day. I moved here about 15 years ago. We come down every year. It's the biggest single wonderful event in the whole state for the whole year. And this was a battle-born state. Um, it's got history to it and they celebrate it. And they don't do that in all the other states in the country. So come out, enjoy the atmosphere, the politics, the crowds, the camaraderie, the love, the mountains, the fresh air. Go, go do it. Gotta come see it. My first name is Olivia. My last name is Vance and six and a half. And can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing? I'm seeing um, horses and songs and the army people. And what's been your favorite thing that you've seen today? Um, the horses. I'm Casey Curry. I moved here uh, in 2019. And I was moving into my house in 2019 during Nevada Day, and I didn't go because I had, you know, movers coming. And then 2020, bleh, and now this is my first Nevada Day parade. You know, I've lived in 15 states, and this is the best one. It really is. I mean, the great climate and this sense of community that we have here in Carson City is just like, I've only been here for like two years, and I already feel like I know a lot of people. And I don't think I could have done that anywhere else because everybody here is so much more friendly than any other state I've ever lived in. My name is Joanne Mathis. We moved from Northern California, from the uh, Trinity Alps, three years ago, my husband and I. He has since passed away, and we knew we need, my son lives here in Washoe, but I love Carson City. It's my final resting spot. How do you feel about the holiday? Why celebrate it? Um, have you celebrated it before? Well, seeing as I've only been here in the state three years, but it's a big, it's, I, I am impressed. It's a big thing. It brings out the patriotism. It's that um, Western, the cowboy feel. If you go up to Virginia City, it's that same kind of feel. Uh, it's just marvelous. These people are People work together. Um, Emma Baker. So this is single jack drilling. Uh, so you have a four pound hammer and you're using chisel bit, bit pieces of steel to drill a hole in a piece of granite. You got 20 seconds to go. Come on. Use it all. That's the way. That's it there. Come on. Keep it up. Keep it up. Come on. Come on. Uh, this was used back um, before drilling was mechanized and um, this was what they would do to load dynamite in the underground mines. Um, people would be underground, not obviously drilling straight down and super conveniently placed like we are um, today, but uh, they would drill holes around the whole heading that they were in to load the dynamite. So yeah, it's kind of a, a tribute to the old days. Is Katie Wellman. I brought my son Caleb Wellman here today and we wanted to experience hometown pride. I think we can all come together and focus on our um, similarities rather than our differences and everyone's proud of to be in Nevada today. My name is Isabel Espinosa. 
I have been in Carson City for many years. I think close to 35. How many Nevada days? Oh gosh, it's been a maybe 30. Well, I feel like uh, I've been in Nevada all my life, and like that's the only way to be. All right, and if you want to hear more about Nevada Day, Jackie Valley has a story on our website about the history. You can also find Tabitha's story as well on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Deirdre Clementi, Tabitha Mueller, David Calvert, Tim Leonard, and all those who talked to us at the parade for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank Jackie Valley, Riley Snyder, and Michelle Rendells, who not only help us edit this very podcast, but also help edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more. If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, Halloween candy extortion techniques from your little cousin, best Halloween song that isn't the Monster Mash, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. It's Monday. I got no sleep, and I think it's because I ate too much Halloween candy. Straight up. (laughs) I'm running on fumes, and I'm going to blame the sugar.